0: Jane! Aha! Uh-huh. I knew I'd bump into you around here somewhere. I want answers, cherry cakes. I love you. Wrong answer. I dropped out of the Sap of the Month Club a long time ago. Now, listen to me, angel drawers. You've got one last chance. And I don't mean one of those Major League Baseball Steve Howe kind of last chances. Now, where's the bomb? It's in the best picture envelope. Oh, Mr. Driven. I want to go straight. I'm tired of the lies. Okay. Please kiss me. I've never kissed up so innocent.
1: A very memorable Oscar night for police squads Intrepid Inspector Frank Drebin, portrayed by Leslie Nielsen in 1994's Naked Gun 33 and a Third, The Final Insult. Wherein he learns that Anna Nicole Smith is not packing a gun; that she's just happy to see him. Call it a reminder that award season is once again upon us. And while I can't speak for everyone—well, while I'm sure I don't speak for most people—I myself have always had kind of a "eh, who cares? It's not really that important," or "I'm not really all that interested" mindset about it all. Uh, not because award season isn't an interesting, mind you. With the Oscars in particular, any excuse to spend three hours re-watching some of the most memorable filmic sequences of the past year always gets my vote as a good time in front of the tube. But as someone who has always loved all kinds of films, I personally have a problem with and awards presentations do this, whether they mean to or not, separating films into the categories of important and unimportant, worth seeing or not worth seeing.
2: Yeah, and while I don't know if my view on awards are as, for lack of a better term, cynical as yours, um, but I totally dec- dec- agree on on not digging the whole designation of important or not important. And, you know, I mean, you and I have kind of talked about this before. After my father died, the week that I was in St. Louis with my mom and my brother, you know, my brother and I, each night after dinner, well, th- three nights weird, during that week after dinner, we went out to see movies, and they weren't... They weren't helpful, you know? And in the <laughs> week, right, There was one was this this indie thing called Robot Stories, which is fine, but it just wasn't helpful in that moment. And when I got back to L.A. and I got back to Maria, like, I got off the plane, and before we even went home, we went to see the uh, Ben Stiller, Skarsky, and Hutch, which, not a movie that I hold in high regard, but it was exactly what I needed, yeah. right? Yeah, So, yeah. So, at what time, it, a movie that other times wouldn't be important to me, but right then, right there, Starsky and Hutch was the most important thing I could possibly see. So, you know, which one's going to pull you deeper? The psychological essay on the nature of life and death when you just spent a whole week dealing with your father's funeral, right? Or something that makes you grin and chuckle and and maybe help save your sanity right when you really need it.
1: So, you know, let that sink in. I totally frickin' 100% agree, and as such, to the audience out there, welcome to the Movie Sneak's first annual Cheapy Bin Awards. (laughs) As as the digital streaming and instant access of movies on Netflix, on demand, and other outlets has been gaining a popularity, perhaps inevitably so, uh, has the concept of browsing, uh, taking a chance, a flyer, an experiment, or a guess on checking out and or picking up a film you might not otherwise be inclined to want to watch, even if you knew of its existence, has that been falling by the wayside?
2: Yeah, in the in the not so long ago days of the drive-in and the inner city grindhouse theaters where you and I pretty much grew up, yeah, uh, right. We often had two or three of these movies playing back to back on one program. You know, you'd have your your main feature that the big studio title, you know, that's been advertised up the wazoo for weeks before it even comes out, and then the second and maybe even the third feature, if you're really lucky, of some low budget. Well, most people would call it crap, right? And you're lucky if you've ever even heard of it. Um, very often, what ended up happening was the low-budget movie, the, the B-movie, turned out to be uh, more enjoyable or more creative, or at the very
1: least, more memorable than the, uh, the A-listed, uh, top-filled movie. Big time. And many of these so-called cheesy B-movies went on to influence some of the most famous creators and filmmakers working today. Uh, yeah, the world is now well aware of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez is indebted to Z-grade thrillers, mm-hmm. exploitation films, European giallo, and others. But did you know that a primary inspiration for Stephen King's Oscar-winning Misery was a little-known 1972 B-thriller called The Strange Vengeance of Rosalie, starring a young Bonnie Bedelia, Ken Howard, and Anthony Zerbe, all three of whom would go on to be nominated for and/or win multiple Tonys, Emmys, Golden Globes, and whatever. And the only reason we knew that one is because we saw it as a kid at the drive-in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, well, today the closest approximation of that is is the DVD.
2: I'm sorry, DVD and Blu-ray cheapy bin. You know that that well of the souls like dump pile in your local Rite Aid or Best Buy or Walmart or dollar store if you're lucky enough to have one of those where you <laughs> fish through like that, that pit of titles like Indian Salas sifting through layers of snakes looking for the one that's actually a gem and not just angry eyes staring at you. <laughs> right? But where you could pick up a, a not so old title for a buck or two, five at the most and you know, where lo and behold you just might discover a new all time favorite. and One that you recommend to other people and, and
1: they haven't heard of it either. Take it. Uh, the Globes, the Sags, Oscars and others have come and gone this year. Uh, we like to think of ourselves uh, as the uh, sort of Oscar hangover party <laughs> and, and now that the thunder has died down a bit And the Vegas and other odds makers have either cleaned up or been cleaned out Depending <laughs> on how accurately their predictions came to pass Now that it's a little quieter uh, Why don't you kick back with us, crack open a beer, pour a glass of wine A shot of something Have some Girl <laughs> Scout cookies and a glass of cold milk Is that time of year or whatever floats your boat and chills you out and join us over the next hour as we pull from the well what we feel, at least, are some pretty damn good movies which, keep in mind, may not have necessarily been released in 2016, but of which Jim and I first saw in their entirety in 2016, thanks to the magic and economic expedience of the ever-popular cheapy bin. <laughs> some may be films you forgot about or didn't even know of or give a damn that they existed in the first place. But we're hoping to change that with our first annual Cheapy Bin Awards. I'm Craig Jamison of Go Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of The Lunch Movie.
2: Welcome to The Movie Sneak.
1: for the best performance by an actor in a
0: miniseries or a motion picture made for television. Amanda Santé The Odyssey. Jack Lemmon 12 Angry Men. Matthew Modine What the Deaf Man Heard. Bing Rhames, Don King Only in America. Gary Sinise George Wallace. And the winner is Bing Ra- Uh, uh, and is uh is Mr. Jack Lemon here? Would you please come up here, sir?
2: Come on.
1: feel that.
0: no i feel that being <laughs> i feel that being an artist is about giving and i'd like to give this to you mr jack lemon <laughs> sure. this is what you want this is what you get this
1: is what you While, as stated earlier, not the biggest fan in the world of the award show in general, I'm not going to front and pretend that there hasn't been some pretty darn memorable moments in the midst of them over the years. We'll be returning to uh, a few of them over the course of the show tonight, and curious to see how many you personally remember. Few, of course, were as memorable as the moment when, out of respect for both his craftsmanship and a lifetime of inspiration. Ving Rhames gave his 1998 Best Actor Golden Globe to the legendary Jack Lemmon. And if there was ever any doubt, and we're pretty sure there wasn't, that those two men were already among the classiest working in the industry, it was put to rest that evening. It really doesn't get much better than that. The mini podcast troupe We Found Microphones, along with our regular musical guests, will return for our next installment a fascinating interview with legendary novelist, biographer, and Logan's Run Trilogy of Terror, Burnt Offerings, Norless Tapes, writer, creator William F. Nolan. One of my personal childhood. Hell, one of my personal lifetime heroes. But tonight it's just me and Jim back together and shooting the S and recording it. I mean, we kind of shoot the shit all the time, just not in any kind of recorded or organized manner. So that said, it's been a while since our... Uh, the, the hell of a while since our last show, uh, about a year ago. Yes, yeah, a year yeah. uh, since our sit-down with Radio Flyer and the Sandlot writer-director David Mickey Evans. So, apologize to everybody out there for no new episodes. Uh, however... It's It's been extremely busy in the best creative possible ways, uh, the most positive of ways. Uh, on this end, as we described when we first started this show, uh, I do a little screenwriting. And last year, I finished two screenplays back-to-back, the second of which is actually being budgeted now and uh, going before a production company, foreign sales company. So there have been many rewrites with both of them. Uh, and as one of them is based on a true story, even been working on a magazine article, companion piece with it. So been a little busy, but yeah. it's been a great, great busy. So just want to let everybody know why we've been a little MIA for a little while. And um, so Jim, I mean, um, with you and 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 the college and all, uh, what's what's going on, on that on that end?
2: Well, you know, I mean, you and I have been just studying this stuff as a, as a nature of, cause it's what, what we're interested in for so long, but it, it, to us, it's second nature just cause movies are what we love. But I mean, it, it, I never thought about this as I never thought about teaching mm. and, uh, and ever since for about from a, I've just passed five years working for Emerson college. And from about a year in people have been asking me there, why don't you teach? And, um, I'm not that comfortable around kids, which is, I, I like being in a bean counter office where not that many. And even when kids do come in, they're still, they're not kids, they're young adults. Right. Right. Um, so it's different, but, but you know, just in the past uh, year or so, all of a sudden, um, a few people, a few different professor friends are talking me into guest lecturing in their classes. And that's uh, awesome. That's been like the biggest weird thing that's happened in this past year that hadn't really hap- been happening before. Uh, and, um, um, Dude,
1: that is freaking awesome! I okay. know. Okay?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the the most recent one, and this is one that you know you and I could practically do a whole show on too, and would probably be better than my lecture was. But um, <laughs> I, uh, a, a good friend of mine who um, teaches history and media arts too, she she asked me to. Uh, she said I could pretty much do anything I wanted. I said, okay. How about either fifty years of Star Trek or social relevance of horror movies from the sixties to the eighties? Get
1: out! And she Whoa. said, let's
2: do the horror one. It's an eight a.m. class. That's going to wow. wake them up. So, yeah, 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 big time. Yeah, yeah, and and you know she used to teach feminist media, and she still might again in the future, I think. But you know we got to touch on Rosemary's Baby and and a handful yeah. of other movies. And she, you know, at the end of it, she actually one of the things she thanked me for was to like for like sort of carrying on the theme of, of her not the ent- the only thing, but a recurring theme in her right, class. Right, right. I just got lucky. And hit on the same, you know, some of the same topics they had already been. And there were times where she would jump in and say, "And this is something we, you know, we were going to discuss next week, or that we discussed last week." You know, just cool. it just worked out really well. Um, I just still don't think I would be comfortable being a teacher full time, mm-hmm. but but this guest lecture thing—it's kind of fun. I like it. And and as uncomfortable as I am doing it afterwards, the students all seem happy. So cool. Yeah, you know, it's it's fun. It's a it's a neat little thing that's uh, been a, an extra smile this past year or so.
1: Can
0: you dig it? Yeah! Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Uh,
1: one thing that's important to remember or keep in mind, uh, Jim and I have no idea what the other person's choices are for this evening's categories. Mm-hmm. Now, those categories will be, as we said earlier, uh, they'll fil- they're will films that we... That films that may not necessarily have opened in 2016, but films which we first saw in 2016 from the cheapy bins, and the categories are best remake or reboot, biggest pleasant surprise, most technically impressive film, fa- personal favorite which most of the world absolutely hated. That should be fun. <laughs> I think you should keep that in. Oh, fucking pages stuck. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) Maybe. And favorite cheapy bin film of 2016. All right. So, uh, jumping in. Jim, why don't you start it off? Best remake or reboot?
2: Best remake or reboot? Well, um... I'm gonna go for Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation.
1: Sweet! Have you seen
2: it? Are you familiar with it? I
1: haven't seen it yet, but yes. It's glorious! It's become a cult favorite, a remake of the Hollywood blockbuster Raiders of the Lost Ark, put together by teenagers. It's hardly ever shown, but Talking Movies joined Raiders fans for the New York premiere of Raiders, the adaptation. For Indiana Jones fans, it was an event that couldn't be missed, the biggest public screening ever of a home video remake of the 1981 blockbuster, the original faithfully recreated by a teenage production team. This is their version of the bar fight scene It does bear a resemblance to the original This Raiders adaptation began almost 25 years ago Driven by the passion of an ardent fan The then very young Chris Strompolis
2: And along with it There's a perfect double feature There's that and then there's uh, a documentary Called The Um, uh, The Raiders Guys which is basically, okay, so Raiders the Adaptation began uh, in 1983 with three friends, about 12 years old, who spent the next six years making a shot-for-shot remake of Raiders. Right. Re- yeah, re- redo of Raiders Lost Ark. Redo of Raiders, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, I mean, this is years before Gus Van Sant even thought to do it with, with Psycho. Psycho here's right. some kids in the Deep South just goofing around. And the one shot that they could never get, they finished it in 1989, but the one sequence they never had was the Flying wing. Hmm. The whole fight. So they basically, you, you know that's happened within their story, but they didn't just move on. Um, a lot. They do a lot of neat model work and just, you know, Z-grade, um, uh, like, junior high level theater effects. Um, uh, but they never finished that model wing. And cut to the 90s, late 90s, the v- bootleg VHSs of this thing start popping up all over Hollywood. mm hmm mm-hmm. Finally, they do a Kickstarter recently to finish their movie as adults, to do that flying wing sequence. And, uh, and that's what the documentary is about, is these guys coming back together 25, 30 years later to finish their film. And um, man, I cried. It was just glorious. It was everything that makes you and me, and probably anybody who would tune into this show, love movies. Uh, and and there's, there's little bits of, okay, just the adaptation part is just, it's it's everything you wish you could do the first time you picked up a movie camera, mm. right? And and that in of itself is worth seeing. Uh, and then if you couple it with the documentary and you basically see that these are three young men who are going through various stages of divorce in their families and or lack of a father figure. Mm-hmm. And Indy, Indy became their logical father figure, um, but more so prevalently for him than he did for, for, for them than he does for sort of all of us. Right, um, it's it's either movie on their own is great. Uh, both of them taken together is the best the best binge watching you'll do this year. Wow!
0: Are you long business or short business? What's the difference? I need to know if you got the fucking brains to walk when it's time to walk. People don't, you know. I've seen you be half a million dollars off. I've been up two and a half million dollars. What do you got on you? Nothing. What'd you put away? Nothing. You get up two and a half million dollars, any asshole in the world knows what to do. You get a house with a 25-year roof, an indestructible Jap economy shitbox, you put the rest into the system of three to five percent to pay your taxes and that's your base, get me? That's your fortress of fucking solitude. That puts you for the rest of your life at a level of fuck you. Somebody wants you to do something, fuck you. Boss pisses you off, fuck you. A wise man's life is based around fuck you. The United States of America is based on fuck you. You're a king, you have an army, greatest navy in the history of the world? Fuck you, blow me. We'll fuck it up ourselves, which we have done. Beautiful fuck you position, lost forever.
1: Mine is, is 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 not as is as, as uh, positively whimsical as that. It's even a little darker, but I have to go with uh, the 2014 remake of The Gambler, <clears throat> starring uh, Mark Wahlberg. Um, I was a big fan of the original 1974 film with James uh, James Caan. It was written by James Toback. It was sort of semi-autobiographical and to a certain degree, even based on an early Dostoevsky book, uh, where Dostoevsky kind of got into his gambling addiction, blah, 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 blah. And it's a pretty dark and deep film. And like we were talking about earlier, that young childhood thing, I saw it on HBO back in the 70s many, many times. And this film just resonated with me for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it was the subject of obsession. I don't know. So when I heard there was going to be a remake and that James Toback wasn't crazy about a remake, I was like, okay, I probably won't see it either. So fast forward a couple of years later. The film comes out in 2014. I don't, you know, follow it too much. One day I'm in, I think, Walmart or something and I see the film, no, I'm sorry, Best Buy. And I see the film in the chibi bin for like three bucks. And I pick it up and I read it back and I notice that it's directed by Rupert Wyatt. And Rupert Wyatt is someone whom I've come to respect in the past two years. He's an, uh, uh, an English director who directed a film called The Escapist with Brian Cox, which is the world's most incredibly clever prison escape film you've ever seen. It's about an older guy who has... um He's estranged from his younger daughter, his his daughter, and when he discovers that she is in critical condition from a drug overdose, he devises an escape plan so that he can be with his daughter in the event that she doesn't pull through. That film led to Rupert Wyatt being hired as the director of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the first film in the whole rebooted Apes series after Tim Burton kind of Screwed things up. Sorry. Uh, Rupert Wyatt got things back on track. And then I read on the back of the the disc box that it was the screenplay was by William Monaghan, who had uh, won an Oscar for The Departed and had also written Kingdom of Heaven and Body of Lies. And it's like, well, I mean, come on now with Rupert Wyatt and and, and William Monaghan. And a cast, including not just Wahlberg, but John Goodman and Jessica Lange and and a few others, I got it's worth three bucks. So I I watched it, and I was blown away. It's one of the better remakes I've seen in recent years. The cast is phenomenal. Uh, Brie Larson is also in it. Michael Williams, whom people might remember as Omar from HBO's The Wire. And even George Kennedy has a small opening cameo. It was actually his last film role before he passed away. And I didn't know until later that the film was originally slated as a reunion. It was going to be directed by Scorsese. It was going to be a reunion of The Departed, Scorsese, uh, William Monaghan, and Leonardo DiCaprio. But eventually Scorsese dropped out, and it became what it is now. And Jessica Lange deserved an Oscar nomination for this role. Uh, John Goodman deserved an Oscar nomination for his role as a loan shark who gives the world's greatest soliloquy in the past 10-15 years of cinema history it's called his fuck you speech <laughs> and it is just an attitude that you have to have toward the rest of the world in order to survive and it is every bit as memorable and quotable as anything Tarantino or David Mamet ever wrote and just from that piece that line alone is worth that that sequence alone is worth watching the film and, uh, yeah, um, it's it, it's, a pretty awesome, it's a pretty awesome film. I was blown away. I was very, very pleasantly surprised. So uh, the 2014 remake of The Gambler rates as my best remake or reboot um, cheapy bin film for 2016.
0: No, but this is really wonderful for, for the most important reason because they said no one went to go see this film, but I know that there's over 700 members here. And if I won... That means the majority of the 700 had to have voted, so that means 352, (laughs) right? But see, something tells me you all didn't really watch the film, because I wouldn't be here if you really, really watched it and understood what I was trying to say. So (laughs) we brought everyone in in the audience tonight uh, a DVD of All About Steve. (laughs) Yeah, we'll say that now. Um. <laughs>
2: Welcome back to the Movie Sneak. And for those of you who didn't guess, who only watched the uh, the good award shows, that was from the 2010 Razzies, where Sandra Bullock won for All About Steve. And uh, fun fact, the very next night, she won Best Actress at the Oscars for The Blind Side. That's a heavy-duty
1: weekend for Miss Bullock. Next up, for uh, all these cinematic tech heads out there, uh, the club of which you and I are definitely card-carrying members, most technically impressive Chibi Bin film of 2016
2: uh, I have a movie from Finland called Big Game. Have so you heard of it?
1: Uh, yes, I have. I have. You yeah. have. Have you seen it? I've seen parts of it okay it's a blast it is
2: it really is uh, it is um, I'm gonna mispronounce the director writer director's name I'll do it my best but Yalmari Hellander okay I, I hope that's it he's from Finland obviously Finnish movie um, and and uh, uh, I picked this thing up for uh, 7 dollars mm-hmm. in Newbury Comics which if anybody's from Boston or New England they know Newbury Comics is one of the it's, it's, it's a chain around here but you can always find you know stuff that Best Buy wouldn't carry okay <laughs> right. right gotcha and uh, right and Hamari yeah, Hellander did a movie a few years ago called Rare Exports: A Christmas Tale, which is just a demonically insane Christmas movie. Um, it's 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 so wrong in so many ways, and so <laughs> perfect about it. it it's a, it's beautiful. It's if I described it to you, it would sound like ultimate grindhouse crap. Everybody I've ever shown shown it to it loves it, um, and and I'd, I'd kind of he'd kind of fallen off the radar for me. Like I saw that one movie, I loved it, and. Then, and didn't think anybody anything else had been coming from him. And then all of a sudden, I find this thing, and not only his follow-up to probably you know, one of my favorite Christmas, you know, un-Christmas movies, uh, uh, but also Samuel Jackson. Yeah, he's the president. Yeah, yeah. So you put those two things together, and that's. I didn't even need to. I mean, I did read the back of the box, but I didn't need to at that point. I already knew I was getting it. Uh, and the whole story here is you've got a thirteen-year-old boy. Uh, who's brought out into the woods by, by the, um, uh, well, basically anybody over 21, like his father, his brothers, his cousins, the whole town, like all the guys mm-hmm. who go hunting together. Yes. They bring him out to the woods, and he's 13, he's come of age, basically, here's your gun, go bring back a deer, or don't come back alive, yeah. right? That's yeah. the whole thing, it's, like, it's a rite of passage for him. <laughs> so this kid goes out into the woods, and and meanwhile, Air Force One is flying over <laughs> Finland, <laughs> um, uh gets gets taken down by terrorists mm-hmm. and Samuel Jackson in this sort of, it's an escape pod you know not too sim- dissimilar from the uh, the Donald Pleasant's right, escape from escape pod, New York from or even Air Force right? One kind of scenario exactly yeah. so so this is just big red presidential bomb just mm-hmm. drops in the middle of the woods so basically this thirteen year old boy uh, with a with a bow and arrow is supposed to defend the president until um, help can arrive. You're
0: lucky. Gotta be honest with you, young man, I'm not feeling so lucky right now. But you are. And if I hadn't found you, you have zero chance of survival. I'm a hunter. This is my home. With this, I can catch us food and keep us safe. Safe from what? Bears. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, there's, there's the bears out here? Yeah. And you could kill one with that thing? Have you done it before? Yes. Really? No, but my dad has. And I could do it too. All right. Your dad sounds like a great man. The best hunter there is. Like me.
2: And the reason I say this thing is technically impressive... Um, it's such a fine line because some of the effects are super cheesy and some of them are super perfect. And I basically, I look at this thing and I I consider it as being uh, uh, Hellander's affectionate nod to, um, that sort of Joel Silver school Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, late mm -hmm. eighties, early nineties action thrillers, right? Like to an extent, certain parts are supposed to look like the clear effects, you know, like we're supposed to know that's a background or green screen or whatever. Um, and i think that's part of the charm i think that's what they're going for almost like grindhouse digitally editing mm-hmm. adding in the uh you know the, the platter scratches on the mm-hmm. print um and so so that they can that they could make it look just the right amount of cheesy without being too self-aware mm-hmm. like it's such a thin balance right i mean they could have gone it could have gone too far over into being so successful at 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 aping that that original style that it's just boring mm-hmm. And now we've seen it all before. Or it could have been so modern that it kind of puts too much of a sheen on, you know, an old style visceral bit of yeah, goofiness yeah, yeah, yeah. like it might have taken itself too soon so it's, it walks this really thin line technically but it sounds great it looks great it feels great uh, it shook the room a little bit in a few of the action sequences when I had the sound mm-hmm. cranked up so yeah it, it did its job and you know Samuel Jackson is not taking any more of these motherfucking <laughs> terrorists <laughs> right, right, right. on this motherfucking <laughs> plane, plane. <laughs> right,
1: right.
2: <laughs> this is a secure line I'm just talking to you right Tommy? that's a phone, right? the russians have been to the moon Say the russians have landed on the south pole we found that lk proton lander it didn't end well for the cosmonaut you find a crash site. i didn't crash We found his body in a crater you found a dead cosmonaut
1: you tell me you didn't know this
2: <laughs> we land less than two clicks the Soviet LK? You expect me to believe you didn't know they were here?
0: You know they scrubbed their manned flight program in '69. That's the official word.
2: Did you know they were here? Tommy?
0: This is a DOD mission, mate.
2: I'm just briefed in on what I need to know. That's all I can tell you.
1: My pick for most technically impressive film is very much for the same exact reasons, not the same film. But for the reasons that, um, as you said, it looked as though they intentionally aped a certain degree of cheesiness without going over the top. And it worked uh, by keeping things in balance. My favorite, most technically impressive uh, cheapy bin film would be Apollo 18. All right. That's uh... (laughs) from 2011. Have you seen that?
2: Yes, okay. I, have. I
1: saw that in the. Funeral. Now I love that film so much because I freaking hate so much the genre of the found footage film. I mean, it started with the Blair Witch project, which I personally felt was technically a masterpiece, but narratively a piece of crap. Um, <laughs> and I just felt it, with the possible exception of the first paranormal activity movie, I just felt that it had just been done to death and done so cheesily and lazily, and it's just an excuse to make movies on the cheap, that it just gets worse and worse and worse. But, even when I first heard the premise of Apollo 18, it suddenly dawned on me, oh my god, that is the perfect premise for a found footage film. And the way it's done, for those who are not aware of the film, um, or maybe American aerospace history, the last actual Apollo mission was Apollo 17 in December of 1972. There were there was an Apollo 18, 19 and 20 on the schedule, but NASA asked them and they never existed. Uh, They they never came to fruition. This film posits that uh, the Department of Defense actually resurrected the Apollo 18 mission secretly. And uh, the astronauts were, the astronauts' families were told that they were on secret training maneuvers, blah, 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 blah. And that the mission was ostensibly a Cold War mission to place sensors on the moon, which could detect Soviet satellites and what have you on Earth. So when the astronauts get there, they discover that uh, there was a Soviet landing on the moon. There is a Soviet LEM you know, which we, those who know NASA history, realize is the landing part of the spacecraft, and um, and they also discovered that. They discover the corpse of a cosmonaut <laughs> uh, who seemed to have died under mysterious circumstances. And they get a little pissed and they're talking to the Defense Department over radio saying, did you know that the Soviet uh, cosmonaut, that, that the Soviet had sent a mission here? So in some respects, it plays as a post-Watergate conspiracy thing. But on the other level, it plays as a straight-up science fiction horror film along the lines of Alien or Leviathan or something like that because there are these moon rocks, these samples that they bring back to their limb uh, which may actually be an alien life form in some inanimate state. And then shit starts happening. Weird shit starts happening. And for me, um, the way the film is executed, um, supposedly... This is footage, it's a combination of footage that was filmed by NASA, interviews with the astronauts, a combination of old-school Westinghouse camera, you know, um, <laughs> in the lunar rover that we saw during the Apollo missions. Those are old enough to remember, anyway. Um, and they even combine it with actual NASA archival footage. And while the film was filmed digitally, they effectively dirty up the film footage with lens flare and hairs in the gates and all kinds of fading to make it all blend together. And the sound design is just phenomenal. It's a genuinely creepy and scary film that is just done to a T. It cost $5 million. It made $25 million, but it looks like it cost uh, five times as much. It's just done so freaking well. I was so impressed with Apollo 18.
0: My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards, that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award and the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee.
1: Continuing with our memorable moments in awards show history, those old enough, hey, sorry, will recall the previous clip as being from the 1973 Academy Awards Ceremony, where, to both cheers and jeers, Native American activist Sasheen Littlefeather declined, on Marlon Brando's behalf, his Best Actor Oscar for The Godfather in order to cast attention on the plight and depiction of Native Americans in the United States, both on screen and in real life. So controversial was this at the time that there are those who still believe it negatively impacted Brando's career from then on. So political activism at award shows is absolutely nothing new. Now continuing on with our own awards presentation, as it were. Next up, most pleasant cheapy-bin surprise of 2016. Jim?
2: I'm half betting you might have even seen this one. Uh, It's uh, adapted and directed by John Slattery from Mad Men. There's a movie called God's Pocket. Oh, no. It? No, have not You didn't. It. No. Uh, well, it's a it's a Philly story, so you should see it. I think oh, you shit. Yeah. I, I personally loved it and maybe you would look at it and go, "Yeah, you know, they kind of missed it." But I, I don't, and I think they actually I don't think it was actually shot in Philly. I think a lot of it was shot in Camden. Mm-hmm. Because it's 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 Philly in uh the is from a novel that was uh, took place in 1983. Okay. Uh, it's by Pete Dexter, who also gave us oh, Paris really? Trout and Sweet. Rush.
1: Yeah. He was with the Philadelphia Daily News for many years. Uh-huh. So, um let and Dexter, right? It's yeah. He's an. Un, he, I was about to say he's an underrated novelist,
2: but no. Anybody who's actually read him loves him.
0: The working men of God's pocket are simple men. They work, marry, and have children. And until recently, they die like everyone else. Twenty-two-year-old construction worker was killed yesterday when he slipped and fell to his death. Leon Hubbard didn't slip on nothing. Something happened to Leon over at that job. Something nobody's told us yet. I'll see what I can find out. Jeannie's got some idea that something else happened on that. early Leon. I was hoping you'd ask around for me. You I mean, you want me to talk this out? I just want to make Jeannie feel better.
1: Can I help
0: you? I'm Richard Shelburne of the Daily Times. I'm so sorry for your loss.
1: Yo, Mick, was the body messed up?
0: It's just the back of his head. Leon was in the truck. With the meat? He was separated from the
2: meat. I knew that would upset you. There's so much I like about this movie, and it's just—it's a—it's a—it's the kind of uh, uh, gritty character, not character, yeah, character-driven crime stories that we had in the in the '70s, mm-hmm.
1: um,
2: and right up until you know when the thing takes place, which is you know, 1983, and. It doesn't, you know. I mean, if this was a studio movie, they would be selling 1983 by by having some greatest hit soundtrack from the era, yeah, right. right? Right, and and they would have acid wash jeans, even though they didn't come out until a few years later. Somebody would be <laughs> playing with a Rubik's cube. There would be all these like little trappings, right? No, none of that. It's all just it's a it's it's a it's a working class neighborhood. It's the cars are all from like 1974 with some rust on them, right? Mm-hmm. So just production design wise, it's a perfect 80s movie without pushing that it's a perfect 80s movie. Right, it's mm-hmm. an '80s movie from where the rest of us lived, not where like the glitzy stuff. It doesn't look like Miami Vice. Is what I'm saying. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. cool. You know, so um, and it's a, it's a it's a story about it. It's uh, uh, Slattery's Mad Men cohort, Christina Hendricks, plays a, a mother of basically like a chronic screw up kid uh, working on a construction site, and. Uh, she's in a relationship with, with Phil, Philip, Seymour Hoffman. This is one of his last movies. Wow. I think that actually came out right after, I think it was actually released right after he died, I believe. Um, and, uh, her screw up of a kid, uh, gets accidentally killed on a construction site and it's no big loss to anybody else in town except her. Um, the kid annoyed everybody. And, and it's actually kind of helps out Philip Seymour often because he, he, the kid was putting a strain on his relationship with his mom. So, um, <laughs> so everybody except her is pretty willing to just let this go. Let it go away, you know? Um, until Richard Jenkins, uh, Damn, underrated wow. character <laughs> actor, right? A very yeah. underrated character actor. Yes. Uh, uh, plays a local reporter. And he's not a crusading reporter. He's not on a mission. He just has nothing else better to cover. And the more he looks into this... The more he finds that that the reasons why no one cares that this kid are, are, is dead are are pretty damn compelling, um, and you know John Turturro pops up for a little bit. Wow. It's, it's just a, it's just a great character actor movie. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's it stars except for you know even a luminous looking lady like Christina Hendricks looks plain here right? <laughs> as much as she can. Right? It's just it's a movie. It's a character actors kind of movie. It's all those faces that you know from somewhere. Um, gotcha. But you can't place their starring roles. I mean, when's the last time Richard Jenkins got a starring role, and he pretty much is the yeah, lead here, yeah, yeah. right? So even though he deserved one, exactly, right? So it's a, it's a it's a it's a great crime movie. It's a great journalism movie. It's like eighty nine minutes long, so it's just tight as a drum. They're not an ounce of fat on it. Um, and and I got this thing in a two pack from Costco. You like you're like you like, get <laughs> like right the eleven ninety nine for two movies that just slipped through the cracks at the yes, at the yes. theater, and that's that's how I got it. So Costco. And I was even uh, the reason the the other movie, which I haven't even watched yet, um, was actually the one that I was more interested in. Uh, and I just started opening the case and I wasn't paying attention and I accidentally opened up this one nah, screw it okay well this is the one that's I'll open I'm going to watch it in. yeah and this is how it happened and it tr- so I mean as far as pleasant surprise that was it like it was a mistake that I even watched this one first
0: we are going to send a message to Gaius and to the rest of the world that freedom is not just for writers and for politicians and and for fancy documents freedom Freedom is our home, our wives, our children, our faith. Freedom is our lives. And we will defend it or die trying. It is not only our duty to defend it, but it is our right. You must remember that men will fire bullets, but God decides where they land.
1: You know, it's funny because even though I haven't yet seen God's Pocket It reminds me of just the way you described it and the cast And um, uh, it reminds me of my pick for biggest uh, pleasant surprise One that I mentioned to you a while ago Um, And one that I actually promised to send you, but I haven't done yet. It's called For Greater Glory. It's also known as uh, Christiata. And it was from 2012. It's directed by Dean Wright. And for people who never heard of this movie, and I know nobody has ever heard of this movie, but check out this cast. Uh, We're talking, it's got Andy Garcia, uh, Ruben Blades, uh, Eva Longoria, Oscar Isaac, um, Peter O'Toole. Yeah, uh, Bruce McGill talking about your Richard Jenkins-like actors who deserve more more notoriety and uh, character actor fave um, Star Trek's uh, Captain Christopher Pike himself, Bruce Greenwood. Okay, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and the film shows light on a little known piece of uh, South American history. I first heard of the film back in 2012, mainly because it was scored by James Horner, and it was one of his you know last. But last five or six feature film scores, and a little bit of a uh, history is that in 1917, Mexico's constitution contained an anti-Catholic provision, but it wasn't until President uh, Blutarco Callez became president that, from 1926 to 1928, that he actually enforced these provisions, and not only were Catholic missionaries expelled from the country, but many natives and foreigners who practice faith were executed by the Felerales. uh the wearing of religious attire was outlawed, and all of this led to a revolution for the right to practice religious freedom, which is, as you said when I first mentioned this film to you, far removed from the, quote, war on the church in the United States by, you know, uh, Starbucks not printing Merry Christmas on coffee cups, <laughs> you know? <laughs> now... During this time, uh, there was a general named Enrique uh, Gorestieta, who was played by Andy Garcia in the film. He's an atheist, and uh, he was involved in the Mexican Revolution. He's now manufacturing soap and perfume, and he's bored. And he's actually approached by the National League for the Defense of Religious Liberty to lead the Revolutionary Army. And his initial motivation is a combination of... Hmm, an impressive salary and a desire to get back to doing what he does best, which is leading men in combat. But he ultimately remains in the position because of a fierce personal belief in absolute freedom, uh the freedom to practice religious faith or atheism or whatever your philosophical belief or disbelief is as one's personal right. And uh that is what really grabs me. Like I said, the cast is phenomenal. I think, impressively, um, it's the directorial debut of a man named Dean Wright, who actually started his career as an effects man with James Cameron. um, And he eventually became one of the founders of Cameron's digital domain. And he went on to be an effects technician on The Chronicles of Narnia, The Two Towers, The Return of the King. And his visual acumen shows... Now, while the film was moderately successful in Mexico, it didn't fare very well financially or critically in the United States, not receiving much of a release in the first place. But even those who didn't necessarily feel the film entirely worked praised its lavish big-screen execution. And not because of CGI backdrops, which really get on my nerves sometimes. And this film doesn't really use much of that at all. But because of some great location scouting, which managed to find actual Mexican locations and period automobiles and trains and railways and more, and the costumes and the cinematography, they're so Oscar-worthy, as is James Horner's score. All of that, even from people who didn't feel the film was entirely successful, received accolades from critics. And it's definitely a film that's worth checking out. It's, uh, it's moving. Even if you're not a person of faith, like I said, just because the whole concept of absolute freedom to practice, to believe or not believe as you choose, it, uh, it, it kind of gets to you. And all in all, uh, I found this one at the frickin' dollar store. Okay? <laughs> Which is why I bought a couple of copies, and I promise I will send this off to you uh, a- a- asap. Nice. But uh, yeah, big time. Don't do this, Charles, please. Daddy! Don't do this now.
0: <laughs> After that night, some say he was a changed man. That his spirit crossed over, giving him powers that can't be explained. I'll call. I have coffins. Thinking you might need a... Cut it!
1: Perhaps the most fun category for both of us and while I can't prove it with empirical evidence, I suspect one which many award shows wish they had. Favorite cheapy bin film first viewed in 2016, which you loved while all the rest of the world absolutely frickin' hated? Well,
2: uh... Here, <laughs> my pick for a hated movie... uh. I just checked this real quick. Um, On the tomato meter, it's got a 29 from critics and a 17% from audiences. And and IMDb, at least, goes at a little better, 4.8. Okay? Uh, It's from 2011. It's called Twixt. T-W-I-X-T. Written and directed by my patron saint, Francis Ford Coppola. He's been doing... He's been going... He's been pushing the independent spirit thing really hard, right? You know, I mean, uh, 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 ambitious movies, but movies where you could tell he didn't give a flying rat's ass if anybody ever bought a ticket. And this is another of those. But for my money, it's better than those other two. It opens with a voiceover by uh, his Napa neighbor, Tom Waits. And any movie that opens, any movie that opens with a Tom Waits voiceover, you know, it tells you. That, and also, it tells you exactly the world you're in. So this thing has uh, uh, Val Kilmer as as a novelist um, named Hal Baltimore. And Hal Baltimore is a, uh, they they call him kind of the bargain basement Stephen King. Like, that's his reputation even within the story. And he's on a book tour, and the book tour in this particular small town, uh, they don't even have a bookstore, but there's a book section in the hardware store. The sheriff of the town is Bruce Dern. And uh, and right when Hal Baltimore has had enough of, 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 of um, the whole town and he's ready to leave, he calls his agent, play by, guess who, check it out, Joanne Wally, who is Val Kilmer's wife in the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, so great to see that they're able to work together again. Um, uh, calls her and he makes his preparations to get the hell out of there. And Bruce Dern shows up and he says, Do you want to hear about a real murder mystery? And any murder mystery writer, any horror writer would of course be looped into that. And trouble is, the mystery that, that Bruce Dern is talking about is, it's not like a recent thing. It's, it's an unsolved mystery that dates back to apparently, possibly, maybe, when, when Edgar Allan Poe had passed through town, also traveling as an author. When you are
0: Edgar Allan Poe. So, if you... How can I help? Well, I don't have an ending. Did you know that Dickens once corresponded with me concerning the technique of writing the ending first and working backwards? What is your need? The length? 40, 50 lines um, per page, um, 200 page minimum.
1: The province. Beauty. The tone. I'll tell you. These points being settled, shall we
0: consider a refrain? I like it. Yes, the the, the, the bell tower has been coming to me. A refrain must be brief. In my own work, my most famous. This led me at once to a single word as the best refrain: "Nevermore."
2: So we have, no joke, Ben Chaplin as the ghost of Edgar Allan Poe. Yep, and 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 L. Fanning is a woman we only know her na- as V. That is her name. But if you know your Poe history. Even that, even that initial will jump out to you. So yeah, it's just it's Copla to a T. It's Copla not giving a rat's ass if you like it to a T. It's just him having fun with some 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 horror history that he knows about and some local history that he wants to tamper with. And um, uh, well, as the numbers I gave you at the beginning show, most people didn't dig it, and I did. How are you
0: doing there? What's happening to me? I'm afraid you're dead, friend. How can you speak to me? Well, it's kind of a knack I picked up when I near died myself. Yeah. <laughs> I can make a stump. Just need to get some information first. You see what I done to you is unnatural. If I keep you out of the ground too long, you likely to just burn right on up. And it seems like the fresher dead you are, the quicker it happens. Being dead. You can see the comings and goings of anyone you knew when you was alive. What do you want? I'm looking for Quentin Turnbull. Never knew Turnbull. What does that sound? Oh, them. Them's likely hellhounds. Reckon they smell fresh meat. Waiting for you for when I let you go, no doubt. No. No. I wouldn't try to pet him if I were
1: I gotta say, you know, people don't hate me for saying this. Don't tune away and never ever listen to the movie Sneak ever again for me saying this. But I gotta go with 2010's Jonah Hex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And Jim, please nice. don't stop being my friend. <laughs>
2: no, no, no. There were parts of that movie that I loved. Okay. Aspects of that movie that I loved. I want to hear I wanna okay. hear what,
1: what I what I missed. <laughs> what can I say about Joe Hicks? It's a hell of a lot of fun. It's weird as all hell, uh, based on a very popular and very dark DC adult graphic novel series. It's an occult western, tongue, very in-cheek action-adventure yarn. And as such, it kind of reminds me of why I also love movies like Big Trouble in Little China, and The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, both of which were also box office failures when they were first released. Now, I don't think Jonah Hex will join them as beloved cult favorite films over time, but I personally love it for the same reason. Now, for those not familiar with the whole premise, uh, basically, Hex, uh, Jonah Hex, Josh Brolin, is a Confederate soldier under the command of a sadistic general named Quentin Turnbill, John Malkovich. When Turnbull orders his men to kill innocent women and children, Hex rebels. Typical stuff. And in the process, uh, Hex ends up killing his best friend, Jeb Turnbull, who is the general's son. Hex disappears and assumes a new identity and starts a new family. But years later, the ex-general catches up with him and murders his Native American wife and child in revenge. Uh, Hex's face is branded and he's killed. Or so Turnbull thinks. On the brink of death, Hex is rescued and brought back from the darkness by the head shaman of the tribe of his deceased wife. I I know this is kind of complicated, but stay with me. Uh, (laughs) And having crossed into death and back again, Hex can now commune with the newly deceased. Uh, Believing Turnbull to have been killed in a fire, Hex now makes a living as a bounty hunter. Until Ulysses S. Grant, learning that Turnbull is alive and has procured a super weapon designed by inventor Eli Whitney of the Cotton Gin. He commissions Hex to uh, find Turnbull and stop him. So, yeah, it's part old school Wild Wild West TV series. It's part the outlaw Josie Wales. It's part Mission Impossible with an occult twist. And I say, how can you not love something like this? Oh, and dig the cast, for God's sakes. In addition to Brolin and John Malkovich, you know, who plays Turnbill, there's Aidan Quinn as President Ulysses Grant. Michael Fassbender as the psychotic Irish hitman working for Turnbill. Michael Shannon, Megan Fox, who looks pretty damn good in that Lady of the Evening Western wear. (laughs) And there's some cameos by... Will Arnett, Tom Wolpat, Wes Bentley, and The Walking Dead and Watchmen's own Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Turnbull's son, Jeb, whom Hex resurrects long enough to get into a neat fisticuff where they eventually make peace. (laughs) Now, I just think that the setting and everything just it was just too much weird shit for it to jibe for most people. Uh, DC hired Neville Dean and Taylor to write and direct the film uh, with the intention of it having the same kind of wild action and sense of iconic classic humor that they brought to Crank and Crank High Voltage and uh, Marvel's Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, but they left because of the creative differences. And while their script remains, directing Reigns went to former Toy Story Finding Nemo animator Jimmy Hayward, whose feature directorial debut was Horton Hears a Who with Jim Carrey and Steve Carell. Now, believe it or not, I think he's actually a good fit because the film opens with this animated backstory sequence stylistically torn from the pages of the graphic novel and the rest of the live action film running just under 90 minutes maintains that surreal quasi Neville Dean Taylor tone. And once again, This is one I picked up at the dollar store. So I admit, if I had paid 20 bucks to see it on an IMAX screen, I might not be as uh, lovey dovey with the film as I am now. But for a dollar uh, at the dollar store, I think it's a hoot. And the Academy Award for Best Picture.
0: (laughs) You're (laughs) impossible. Come on. La La Land. Yeah!
1: La <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, there's a mistake. There's, there's a mistake.
2: Go, go. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
0: Moonlight won
1: Come on, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is. this is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. This is uh, very unfortunate what happened. Personally,
2: I blame Steve Harvey for this.
1: In the annals of memorable award show moments, that one may forever go unparalleled. Warren Beatty and Faye Donaway being handed and reading the wrong card for Best Picture at the 89th Academy Awards. Ouch. Nowhere near as epic, but as equally important to us, we now reach our Best Picture category, a.k.a. Favorite cheapy bin film first viewed in 2016. Jim? I'm gonna hope
2: this isn't a cheat. you know that I've I've rated almost four thousand movies on IMDB and my whole my whole cat my whole criteria is I only count it if I've seen it start to finish in one sitting. If I've seen most of it on cable in bits and pieces, that's not fair. If I've if I've turned it off 20 minutes into it because it just sucked, I'm not going to go in and give it a zero or a one or whatever. It's just, again, it's not fair. I haven't seen the whole movie. It's not fair to the people who put in the effort to make the thing. So having only seen it start to finish in one sitting, uh, my chibi bin movie that actually with well, the DVD, I'm sorry, the Blu-ray was released in 2016. Uh movie is actually several years older than that. Uh, Criterion has finally, in a way that we could never really say we have before, Made it possible for us to see and hear, more importantly, Orson Welles chimes at midnight.
0: (laughs) Oh, bastard son of a king. (laughs) That villainous, abominable misleader of youth. (laughs) Sweet Jack Falstaff. Kind Jack Falstaff. True Jack Falstaff. Valiant Jack (laughs) Falstaff. Thou art going to the wars, and whether I shall ever see thee again or not, there's nobody cares. You have deceived our trust, and made us off our easy robes of peace, to crush our old limbs and ungentle steel. And
1: if we live, we live to tread on kings. If die, brave death when princes die.
2: I have seen this once in a revival theater, and it sounded kind of like this. I don't know if you can even hear me right yeah, now, yeah, yes. what I'm doing. Yeah. That's kind of what the sound was kinda like for the whole yeah. damn movie. It was terrible, and it sounded like it was coming mm-hmm. through a tin can. I unless it, Okay, so the, the story is Orson Welles plays uh, John Falstaff. A supporting character in Henry the Fourth, Parts One, mm-hmm. Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth, Parts One and Two, uh, and then he, he's also in Merry Wives of Windsor. So basically, he's this great supporting character. And Orson Welles took all four plays and turned him into the lead character and made a whole new story, basically you, using all those stories and and then like a little bit of filler here and there to, to tie them all together. And he got to play this great character, but we can't hear him. We can't hear anything. And if unless you unless you know the plays very well, you, you're just lost. And and even if you do know the plays very well, it's still annoying. Uh, and finally, this year, Criterion has cleaned it up. It looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's not. It doesn't look like something that was made yesterday. You know, it's it's still 1965 and they did as much as they could with it. But in as much as, you know, when Universal started cleaning up the uh, the Universal horror catalog for the first DVD release, I remember reading, actually, I think they even say it on one of the features in the Frankenstein one, they cleaned up the sound so much at Universal that they could actually hear trucks driving by outside the soundstage. So they had to put a bit of the ambient noise back in. And that's basically what Criterion has done. So basically, that's my favorite cheapy bin movie of the year is that... Uh, uh, Criterion once or twice a year does these twenty four hour flash sales, and uh, even better than that, th- those are beautiful. But the downside is twenty four hours is really intense. Here is another thing: also once a year or so, Barnes and Noble puts the whole catalog on sale for like two weeks, so you can think of it. Because basically, I go in and I, I rack up like four hundred dollars of things in my in my cart. I can't spend four hundred dollars up. Movies, right? Um, so I just I put them all in there. And I think about it, and I still want it. Yeah, and I basically wait until the last day and see what's sold out, and I kind of consider that fate. But uh, this one, I didn't wait until the last day. This one, I actually pounced on when it was half price, uh, and and it's worth it at twice the price. It's worth it's worth well more than they're charging for it. The the effort paid off. It looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. And and uh, Orson Welles has his evidence. Back where it should be, you know? It's um it was transformative. And uh if you like Orson Welles at all, if you like Shakespeare at all, uh w- wait till right? Wait till wait till that sale again and and buy a copy and buy a second copy for a gift for someone Someone's,
0: what? Someone's living in our boat. You know that guy? I've never seen him before. What'd you say, boys? I'm waiting on my girlfriend just can't spend the rest of my life running away with him. She don't care about nobody but herself. Ain't he stuck off in that island because of her. Son, have you seen this man? This river brings a lot of trash down it. You got to know what's worth keeping and what's worth letting go. You never said your name. Mud. You can call me Mud.
1: I have to go with, uh, mud. <laughs> <laughs> Dig it. Cool. Yeah. From 2012, written and directed by Jeff Nichols. The reason I like this film so much is because... I guess, like, other coming... Of, and I got this one at the dollar store for a freaking buck. And because, of, like, other coming-of-age stories, like Stand By Me, I just immediately knew those characters. Both the children and the adults. And the cash, for God's sakes. Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Sam Shepard, Michael Shannon, Jodan Baker... And Sarah Paulson, who since her turn as Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson, she's become one of my favorite contemporary actresses, period. But uh, for those who may not be aware of this film, I first heard about it a few years ago. I, Leonard Maltin did a, a quick review of it on a show one night on Reels Channel, and I said, boy, that sounds interesting. But he undersold it. Uh, the main characters are two 14 year old best friends named Ellis and Neckbone. Love those names. Ty Sheridan and Jacob Laughlin, who live in a low-income Arkansas town just off the Mississippi River. Uh, His parents, Paulson and Ray McKinnon, probably best known to a lot of people as Reverend Smith and Deadwood, uh, they're on their verge of divorce. And to escape the daily drudgery, he and Neckbone go on these lengthy excursions down the Mississippi in their small outboard. Um, One day on a small island like Sandy Point, They find this decent-sized beat-up boat stuck up in a high tree, obviously lodged there during some major storm flood a while ago, and they plan to claim it and fix it up, but they discover that a mysterious guy named Mud, Matthew McConaughey, lives in it. He promises them he'll let the boys have it if they'll run a few chores for him in town, getting food and whatnot, while he waits for the love of his life to return, a woman named Juniper, played by Reese Witherspoon. Now, over the weeks, as the three of them repair the boat, Mud regales the young guys, especially Alice, who is very romantic and has a big-time crush on this older girl at school who acts like he doesn't even exist. But uh, with these stories of how he and Juniper met and how they're fated for one another, but how the negative aspects of fate have conspired to keep them apart. Anyway, the two boys run across Juniper in town, and they let her know that Mud is waiting for her. But the police are also looking for Mud, as it appears he maybe once killed someone because of Juniper, a man whom Mudd kind of refuses to believe was actually Juniper's lover, although an abusive one. And as the police draw closer to finding Mud, uh, the father of the man that Mudd supposedly killed, this restaurant tycoon everyone refers to as the king, played by Jodon Baker, closes in too. Now, anyway, while it did occur to me while watching the movie that, at its core, uh, Mud was about, in general, the loss of childhood innocence, and in particular, about that moment where every young guy's romantic image of the world is dashed into a thousand fucking heartbreaking pieces, which, for the rest of his life, he has to pick up and try to put back together, it didn't occur to me until I watched the bonus feature interview, with the uh, writer director Nichols, that it was also his contemporary rift on Mark Twain. Ellis and Neckbone are Tom Sawyer and Hook Finn, and they're journeying down the Mississippi, and they're getting into these alternately hilarious, scary, and heartbreaking adventures along the way. What'd she say?
0: You're a liar! Making two kids run around doing all the work because you're too scared to do it yourself? <laughs> Making me tell her it's over because you're too scared. You said you loved her and you lied. You gave up on her and she gave up on you. Just like everybody else. I trusted you. Bonfires and crosses and wolf's eye. Bullshit! Come on, Ellen. Every single thing you told me was a lie. You never cared about her and you never cared about us. Not enough to matter. You used us.
1: So, uh, it's almost instantly mud not only became my favorite cheapy bin movie of 2016, but probably one of my all time favorite coming of age movies, period. Can you dig it? Yeah.
0: Can you dig it? Yeah. Can you dig it? Yeah.
1: I think that the Cheapy Bin is now one of the few remaining bastions of experimentation. Um, I mean, th- I mean, think about it. People out there, think about it. Cheapy Bin movie. You're at Walmart, Best Buy, Rite Aid, whatever. For ten bucks, you can get four or five movies. And I realize that not everybody has the space to keep, you know, to own movies. But think about it. Get four or five movies for ten bucks. The price of two hot dogs and a coke at the movie theater. Maybe you watch one movie per weekend For the next month Maybe you watch them even again if you like them And then maybe you just give them away to Goodwill So nobody loses (laughs) You know, Goodwill gets it You've you've experimented with a couple of movies You might not otherwise have seen And you don't have to take up uh, Storage space in your house And uh, end up on um, A reality show as a hoarder Well I could pretty much uh, echo everything you just said But in kind of one
2: other angle I'd throw in there um, when you're when you go in a cheapy bin, nothing's alphabetized, nothing's arranged by cat Even when you used to go, when we still had video stores, when things would be organized by genre, it's a it's a bin, it's a bucket. It's you, you reach in, you're bobbing for apples, and that's it, right? And and uh, you know, even streaming, you know, you still go in for a specific genre, or you just you're going alphabetically. You know, you 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 kind of remember the thing you meant to see. Cheapy bin is. Uh, it's 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 like a box of chocolate, <laughs> it's, right? Right? right. Yeah. You, exactly. So, um, and that's kind of the charm of it. So that's the thing. Did, streaming is great. The streaming has introduced so many people to so many things they wouldn't have seen otherwise. But uh, it could still vanish, like like snow in, in the sun, right? And and that's why that's why the cheapy bin is valuable because it helps you find things you didn't even know you were looking for. And that's why DVDs, Blu-rays, VHS laser discs uh, film 35 70 16 super 8 that's why it's all valuable because you know these things can be preserved so yeah maybe I'm an old fart and that I want to have a tangible thing to hold on to but those tangible things are more likely to last
1: well uh, this has been awesome I guess just in closing, I want to say, gee, thanks Jim for, for, for diving into this. Somehow I knew you would be whole, wholeheartedly whole hog, uh, <laughs> along this topic and a great big shout out to, uh, Bob Cho and Sean Carr, of art Ni- obviously sorry. And Sean Carr of art 19. Okay. Gotta get, definitely gotta get that right. <laughs> have Bob, Bob, uh, Sean, you know, <laughs> for, uh, for, 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 uh, for, getting our back. So cool. uh, once again, thank you for joining us. I'm Craig Jamison of Go Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney from The Lunch Movie. And we'll uh, talk to you next time here on The Movie Sneak. See you next time up in those cheap seats. Nice. All film and music audio excerpts contained in this broadcast are the property of the respective copyright holders and that they are used here for criticism and educational purposes only.